got this cool binder, you know. You know, so when I did the elder training, they gave me this thing, and it says image checking statements on, and I'm not sure what part of my image I'm supposed to be checking. Maybe that's some sort of hint, but I, but I got that, and I got a lot of great training, too, and uh, this is the end of that. So um, I'm James Murphy, and I'm going to preach to you today from God's Word. Uh, in today's passage is in Matthew 22, so if you'd open up to there, that would be great. And I'll be teaching on the first 14 verses. But before we turn there, I'd like to relate to you a story from our own time that has a bit of a similar pattern. I think you'll pick up on it. Well, as you're aware, I'm sure presidential inauguration ceremonies are kind of a big deal. Thousands fill the D.C. Mall as people from both parties, young and old, turn out to see the new president taking the presidential oath of office and entering his first term as our chief executive, head of state, and commander-in-chief. Former presidents and other recognizable dignitaries show up for the big event to witness the ceremony. And uh, I don't know if you knew this, but beginning with FDR in 1937 and the enactment of the 20th Amendment, Inauguration Day has always occurred on January 20th, except in cases when uh, that date falls on a Sunday, and then that, uh, the inauguration actually happens on the 21st. And as you might guess, living here in this area, it's often very cold on that day. Well, one particularly cold Inauguration Day, many of the invited guests actually didn't show. And during the morning hours leading up to the swearing-in ceremony, temperatures were hovering in the mid to low 20s. Winds were gusting out at about 25 miles an hour, and the wind chill was about 10 degrees. As the ceremony approached, the grandstands behind the podium were nearly empty. And the invitations had gone, back, gone out back in uh, November, and because of the tight security and extensive procedures involved with gaining access to an area so close to so many people vital to our country and to our government. The invited guests were told to arrive very early and to be in their seats behind the podium hours before the ceremony began. And it wasn't long before it became apparent to the officials that many of the seats in full view of the shivering standing room only crowd would be empty. And more importantly, the American people and really the world would see those empty seats behind the president. And as the new president raised his hand and affirmed his oath, and as he delivered his big speech, images would be beamed to warm living rooms around the world that would seem to suggest that the country wasn't behind our new leader, pun intended. Couldn't a new president drum up a few hundred supporters to sit behind him in the stands on his big day? People would be asking questions like that and wondering, what's going on here? What would the world think? Well, the impending embarrassment had to be averted. So, presidential statures, uh, staffers were dispatched throughout the Capitol building to gather in worker bees from the hallways. These citizens, these are citizens who didn't receive the invitation. They were average folks like you and me, not famous politicians, not powerful campaign donors, not wealthy businessmen or Hollywood stars. And as it happened, I was working in the Capitol that day. At the time, I worked at the White House as a Marine officer responsible for air operations for the president, and I was one of the average folks that was scooped up out of the hallway and invited to sit in the stands. 
And as I said, many of those who were invited simply did not come. They made excuses about the cold, ignored the high honor given them by the most powerful man in the world. And well, those seats needed to be filled. And by the time the president stood in his place, cameras rolling, the stands were full. Today we continue our study in Matthew, beginning in the 22nd chapter, in the first verse, and we'll see here a similar story with the message much more important and much more relevant to us than the decision of a few bigwigs to avoid some uncomfortable temperatures. We'll see an original invitation sent and rejected, like a letter improperly addressed and stamped return to sender. We'll see a subsequent invitation received and accepted, and many others uh, go to the banquet until the banquet hall is full. Please join me as I read Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. I'll then open us in prayer. Please pay careful attention as this is God's word, which is faithful and true. Matthew 22, beginning in the first verse. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry. He sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore into the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot, and cast him into the outer darkness. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This is God's word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your abundant grace toward us, your church. Thank you for your word today. Holy Spirit, thank you for enabling us to understand and apply your truth in our own lives as we examine again this wonderful book and consider how we might know and love the Son more. Thank you, dear Jesus, for your gracious invitation to us, poor, undeserving sinners, to join you at your glorious wedding feast. Please help us to grasp more firmly today just how wonderful it is to know you and to be known by you. 
May we live today and always for your glory. We, your church, thank you in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we've come again to this wonderful book here in the 22nd chapter into a continuing discussion between Jesus and the Jewish chief priests and elders. This section actually is the climactic parable in a series of three that we've been studying over the past several weeks. In chapter 21, we studied Christ's arrival as the humble king of Israel seated on a donkey on Palm Sunday. We saw his wrath on display in the outer court of the temple as he overturned the temples of the money changers. Next, we witnessed the indignant response of the chief priests and the scribes when he healed the outcast, the blind, and the lame, enabling them to enter the inner courts. We read about the fruitless fig tree representing Israel that was cursed for not producing the fruit for which it was made. The conversation with the chief priests and elders before us today in chapter 22 began in verse 23 of chapter 21 when they questioned Jesus' authority. And in the parable of the two sons, these same Jewish leaders were told by Jesus, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes will go into the kingdom before you. I'm sure that didn't go over too well. It kind of hurt. In Jesus' second parable in this series, the parable of the tenants, he said to them, therefore I tell you the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Well, folks, the news for the chief priests and elders isn't going to get much better in today's parable. However, let's remember that God's word is not just relevant to its first audience. The warnings and blessing in today's passage are also relevant to us. So pay careful attention. Here in Matthew 22, verses 1 through 3, Jesus continues his discourse with the Jewish religious leaders. Read with me. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call on those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. A quick word on the cultural context. Jesus' first audience heard, when Jesus' first audience heard this parable, they would understand the importance of the invitation. They would have understood that an invitation from the king was a very big deal. And that it was really more a command than an invitation. Like the invitation to sit behind the president on the inauguration day, but way more important. They would have also understood that a wedding feast, particularly one thrown by someone important like a king, would probably last several days, maybe even a week. Turning down such an invitation by a king would be very improper, to say the least, and would most certainly invite punishment. They would have understood these things. Now, Christ was telling the Jewish leaders in Israel, by extension, that the kingdom of heaven is like this wedding banquet and that the son in the parable is Jesus. They and their fathers had the promises. Their forefathers had the promises. They are the people to whom God sent the prophets. They are the king's invited guests. The Jews are the ones who just one chapter ago 
shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Sadly, less than a week later, many of these same people would stand in a nearby courtyard shouting, crucify him. Reading on, we see that the king of the parable sent his servants out multiple times. And we know from the Bible that Yahweh sent his prophets to Israel, including John the Baptist, multiple times to, send, to tell them to repent and believe. Not long after the account we're reading today, Jesus sent out his apostles. And each time, God sent his servant messengers out. Many ignored God's invitation. Many of God's servant messengers were killed. Resuming in verse 4, again he sent out other servants, telling those who were invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm and another to his business, while the rest seized his servants treated them shamefully, and killed them. Friends, today, equipped with God's word and his Holy Spirit, we, we are God's servant messengers. We are the ones going out into the streets, into our offices, out, of, out to ball games, and into living rooms with the king's invitation. The preparations are ready. Christ's sacrificial work is complete and the banquet hall awaits. Notice in the passage that the people ignored the previous invitation. Here again they impolitely impolitely ignore the servants when they offer the king's second invitation. Instead they offer excuses. One goes to his farm, another to his business. The point here is that farmers and merchants Rural people, city folk, all turn aside to routine and mundane pursuits and pass on the king's feast. We all know people today that say they're too busy to consider the gospel. Life in the church, a relationship with the king, they say they don't have the time, they're not interested, or perhaps they'll wait until they get married and settle down, have some kids, wait till those kids grow up perhaps. Or they say they just wait until they get their acts together before they get into religion. And every time someone speaks with a podium and a mic, they got to do air quotes. So there's my air quotes. I don't know if you could check that off, my examination, the air quotes. All right. Notice in our passage how disinterest turns to violence towards these servants. Here we're reminded how Yahweh's prophets were often slaughtered, how Christ himself will be killed, and how nearly all of Jesus' apostles die as martyrs. I can't help but sense that Christ is speaking to us, his servant messengers today. You see, being a servant of the king and a messenger of the king doesn't mean that you always be given a life of ease in the glow of the banquet. Believers, you are made to go out as his servant messengers to bring the light of the banquet table out to a dark world. Returning to the passage, we see the king is zealous 
for his kingdom, and disobedience and rejection of his invitation results in punishment. The first king, at first the king sent two sets of servants with invitations. This time he sends troops with judgment. We read on in verses 7 and 8, the king was angry. He sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Here we've reached the main point and key verse of this passage. The king pours out his wrath upon those who did not accept his gracious invitation and declared those invited were not worthy. I imagine in the ears of the chief priests and the elders, this statement must have further infuriated them. Our passage today is in fact bracketed by accounts of their reaction. Last week we learned that the Pharisees knew that these parables were about them. Next week we'll see how they plotted to entangle Jesus in his words and get him in trouble with the Roman authorities. But this parable is bigger than the religious leaders who first heard it. In the immediate context, it is about the chief priests and the elders and the people of Israel who are rejecting their Messiah. But by extension, it's about people today who have heard the gospel and have ignored and rejected God's invitation to the eternal relationship with him. Who have turned aside to mundane, common pursuits of life instead of enjoying the very real, very tangible, and everlasting peace of Yahweh's wedding banquet. Graciously, the king sends more servants out with a new round of invitations. Let's look at verse 9 and 10. Go therefore into the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. This time the king sends servants out to the main roads and likely the intersections of roads where people gather. And this time he sends his invitation to new people. And by this, we and I'm sure the Jewish leaders of Jesus' time and the first hearing of this parable are to understand that God's invitation is going outside of Israel. God's new covenant in Christ is not just for the Jews. It's not just for those who are genetically related to Abraham, his descendants. It's for all who believe in Jesus and trust him as Messiah, both Jew and Gentile. Let me take a moment here and point out that none of us is worthy of God's grace. Romans 11.6 tells us that if we could make ourselves worthy somehow and acceptable to God by something we could do, by being good, then grace would no longer be grace. In that sense, no one is worthy. And each of us who hears the gospel is invited. But only by grace through faith are any of us saved. Notice in the passage how the servants gather in all that they find, both bad and good. You see, the job of the servant wasn't to discriminate. It wasn't to prejudge or to weigh the suitability of the invited. And I wonder... As I ask myself this question too, do you find yourself doing that? Do you ever look at somebody and say, that guy's never going to be saved? 
I'm not going to even waste my time with her. Or I've argued with that person, or I've done this or that, and that person is never going to believe. The servants in the passage are charged with inviting all they find. The word order here, I believe, is interesting. And I think it's significant that the people who the servants bring are described as both bad and good in that order. You see, the striking thing about these people is not that they were not on the original wedding banquet invite list, but that there were both bad and good people invited at all. This description must have really rattled the Pharisees. After all, for them, goodness was everything. Obeying the law was paramount. Of course, we know from God's word that the law serves to reveal to us our inadequacy in following it and ultimately brings us to the foot of the cross where our imperfection and our sinfulness is covered by the righteousness of Christ's perfection. And we'll get to a little bit more of that in a bit here. Friends, we're certainly not basically good. More air quotes. Basically good. You hear that a lot also, right? As the world suggests, we fall, we all fall short of God's perfect standard and are only invited into fellowship with Him by grace, which by nature is again unearned. It's undeserved. It's unmerited favor from God. Here in this passage, Jesus Jesus' point, I believe, is to show the Pharisees that the king's invitation, having been rejected by them and many other Jews, was going out to other people outside of Israel. And that goodness was not a prerequisite for being invited. Jesus was telling them that the wedding banquet hall of Christ would be filled and that they would be left outside. Now this next section has some hard things for us. Let's read on, beginning in verse 11. And again, please pay close attention. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. First thing to notice here is the access of the king, the proximity, the closeness, the nearness and access to the king. He doesn't look down from a distance from some heavenly balcony. The passage clearly tells us that he comes into the wedding banquet hall and looks at his guests. Believers, we worship a personal God who is Emmanuel, God with us. We join together in this building and as a church and join our worship with believers all across the globe every Lord's Day. And we do so in full view of and indeed in the presence of the King. As we lift our voices in song and in prayer and as we worship Him through the study of His Word, He is here, here with us. He sees us, he hears us, he is with us. And in this parable, there's no mention of fear among those who belong at the table. Here at Potomac Hills, there's joy as we consider that our Heavenly Father is here with us. However, as we see in this parable, 
The king sees someone at the wedding banquet who doesn't belong. He comes up to that individual and addresses him directly. Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? I ask, have you ever been thrown out of some place you didn't belong? I have. Have you ever hunched down in your seat hoping that someone in authority wouldn't notice you? For the students out there and all of you that have been students in the past, have you ever sat in class unprepared, fearing that the teacher is going to notice you and ask you a question during the lesson? Well, this is how I picture this guy. This, I'll call him an interloper at the banquet. The king is walking among the guests. The interloper watches in dread as he moves through the crowded hall, weaving through the tables. He knows he doesn't belong. He knows he's not prepared. Well, the same day I was invited to sit in the stands behind the president as he took his oath, I was also ejected from another scene on the other side of the Capitol. Same afternoon, later that day. As the aviation planner for the president, I was responsible for orchestrating the departure aboard Marine One of the outgoing president at the conclusion of the ceremony. So standing near the president's limousine on the back side of the Capitol, opposite the D.C. Mall, radio in hand, helicopter ready, I stood with a pair of my colleagues waiting for the outgoing president to come out of the building to get into his limousine to drive 100 yards to a waiting helicopter and depart. Well, as it happened uh, that day, there was a long, unscheduled delay. And we stood there in the cold for quite some time. Suddenly, an email arrived on one of my colleagues' Blackberries. It's one of those ominous emails. All caps. Lots of exclamation points. And in the digital world, I'm sure you realize that all capital letters is the text equivalent of yelling, right? And you see that the cameras were positioned on a platform and aimed directly at the limo and at the door that we were standing next to. And with all the action on the other side of the building over and the departure of the outgoing president expected at any moment, the three of us were on TV on all the networks. The problem is, in our line of work, it's highly inappropriate for us to be noticed at all, much less on everybody's television set. So even though we thought we were important, even though we were dressed appropriately, even though we thought we were in the right place, we were unceremoniously escorted or really ejected and cast out of sight. In fact, I remember reading the email and practically jumping out of my skin as we immediately leapt behind one of those big columns. And in my mind, it must have appeared to everyone in TV land like the three of us were suddenly taking fire from the press box. You can imagine that. A few nervous moments later, we kind of oozed out of sight and escaped and exited stage left, hoping we weren't going to get any trouble from the higher-ups. And I'm sure I even gnashed my teeth a bit during the whole debacle at some point. But how do we handle this out-of-place guess in our passage? There are multiple ways to interpret this section. One might say that he represents a believer who hasn't corrected his worldly behavior and was, wasn't suited for the party. Get him out of here. 
Or perhaps this is an unbeliever who doesn't belong because he hasn't earned the honor of sitting at the king's table. Some commentators suggest that this is someone who hasn't put on the wedding clothes provided to him by the host. And like the first case, hasn't sanctified himself enough through good works and proven his right to remain at the table. In any case, we see here that the man was speechless. He had nothing to offer in his defense when the king questioned him. Understanding how to read this passage is very important because the parable is about to take a dramatic turn. Read with me verse 13. The king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. First we had servants with invitations for many, then soldiers with judgments for a city. Now we have attendants with handcuffs for an individual. What do we do with all this? Sounds pretty severe. Who is this guy and why does he get kicked out of the party? Well, first, it's important to realize the banquet is a picture of the visible church here on earth. It's not a picture of our fellowship with God in heaven. No one would be admitted by faith into heaven only to be carried out in shackles. And in this life, no believer will lose his salvation once received by genuine faith in Christ's completed work. And no person will ever earn or keep his salvation because of his own work. So we're not talking about heaven here. We're talking about the visible church. You don't keep your salvation because you look the part. You aren't given salvation as a result of cleaning up your act. So we have Christ's visible church in view in these verses. And guess what? The visible church is what you see here today. In this room and in churches of many denominations across the globe. You can see it. This is the visible church. Some of the people in God's visible church are not believers. Many are. The believers are what constitute God's invisible church, the universal church, the church with a big C, the true church. And the point here in this part of the parable is that God, like the king, knows the difference. He knows who belongs. So, so what? So why is this important? How is it relevant to us here at Potomac Hills? Well, the point is, is that God gave his grand story of sin and redemption, rebellion and salvation to his people from the very beginning. And here we read in Matthew 21 and 22, three parables that tell us there are consequences for rejecting the Messiah's invitation. In verse 13, we realize, we learn that God knows if you're playing church, if you're trusting in the faith of your parents, your friends, your attendance record, your giving, your goodness, your good intentions. The king knows who belongs at the banquet hall. Those who do not belong are taken away and separated from the glow and the fellowship of the wedding feast. They're put in an inescapable, graceless, eternal existence where they will weep in conscious awareness of the salvation they rejected. 
They will grind their teeth endlessly in anguish as God's forgiven feast at Christ's wedding banquet. The thought of such a fate should make us shudder. Our last verse today, verse 14, continues, For many are called, but few are chosen. The gospel goes out to many. You've heard it today. Through the baptism, through the sermon. If you attend here, it's hard to miss. The songs we sing, the prayers offered, the sacraments administered, the Bible teaching from this pulpit, Sunday school classrooms, in home groups, in prayer meetings, in men's and women's studies, week after week, they are all permeated with the gospel. The gospel is at the very center of who we are and everything we do here at Potomac Hills Presbyterian Church. It is the main thing. But if you missed it, pay attention. Here it comes again. Christ, the sinless God-man, perfect only Son of our Heavenly Father, was sent here to give his life as a payment for sins. He did this not because of my goodness or your goodness, not because you or I deserved it, not because you earned it, not because you attend church, not because you're a good person, not because of anything you will ever do. His sacrifice continues to satisfy the righteous requirements of a just and holy God who cannot leave sin unpunished. 1 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him, that is Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I'm going to read that again. Turn to it if you like. 1 Corinthians 5.21. This is really important. For our sake he made him, that is Christ, to be sin who knew no sin. Christ had been with the Father and the Holy Spirit in perfect unity and perfect fellowship for eternity. And here on the cross, he becomes sin personified. He receives and becomes our sin. Why would God do that? so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He became sin, and we get to become, by faith in Christ, God's righteousness. Now that's a pretty profound exchange. You can look at it this way. Christ received what we deserve, so that in faith we could receive what only he deserves. Belief in Christ's work on your behalf, his obedient, substitutionary, sacrificial death on a Roman cross and his resurrection three days later is the only way for you to avoid being eternally punished for your sin. Simply put, either Jesus Christ is punished for your sin or you will be.
Friends, it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone that we become the righteousness of God. We become the righteousness of God. He became sin. By faith, we become God's righteousness. It's an amazing thing. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no way to please God, no way to have a seat at his eternal wedding feast, and there is no way to fully enjoy his blessings at his banquet in this life either. It has been said that churches have three types of people in them. Believers, non-believers, make-believers. Friend, what are you? God knows the difference even if we do not. And, and, and I'm, I'm here to, to help you to uh, read these things to you so that you can carefully consider this invitation. Only faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ can save you, your faith. Only your faith. Not your parents' faith, not your spouse's faith, not your friend's faith. But your faith alone, in Christ alone. In today's passage, we've seen again how Yahweh's people, the Israelites, rejected their kingly Messiah. In the weeks and months to come in Matthew, we will see their rejection of Christ further unfold. We have heard Christ's proclamation that those who were invited first, that is the Jews, were not worthy. We saw how Christ sent his servants to go out into the streets to gather in his people. We have also seen that merely being among the guests doesn't ensure that you belong at the table. God knows who, a genuine chi- who is a genuine child of the king. He knows who has trusted in him for salvation. Sally, the rest are excluded from the banquet. Friends, if you trusted Christ, have you believed the gospel? Everyone here has heard the gospel today, and my prayer is that you would be drawn by God's spirit to receive by faith his invitation to join Christ's great eternal wedding feast. I pray today that you would begin to live the abundant life and enjoy the abundant eternal life that Christ has purchased you. I pray that by faith you have a permanent seat at his wedding banquet. Now believers, this is for you. Listen up. We are God's servants charged with going out into the streets to invite as many as we find, leaving our prejudices and our preconceived notions behind. We invite and God will sovereignly do the work of sorting out those who respond. God's charge to us believers is to live a life that is inviting, to speak graciously, to administer mercy, to serve and love your neighbors humbly. Believers, we need to be the invitation. We need to invite. We need to invite people to church. All those things are important. But we also need to in Invite friends and neighbors into our homes. We need to invite them into friendship. Invite them to lunch or dinner or just to hang out. We need to engage the culture, engage our neighbors, our friends, spend time with them. Find things that you have in common. Find the things that they enjoy and meet them there. We need to be good employees, good neighbors, good friends. We need to return tools when we borrow them. We need to lend tools when they're needed. We need to ask forgiveness. We need to offer forgiveness. 
I had a pastor say often, we need to love people who are like us. We need to love people who are not like us. We need to love people who do not like us. It's true. Think about it. In short, we need to be living examples of what grace looks like. Do that and people will know that you have something they need. Without clubbing them with scripture verses or cornering them with forced out-of-place questions, they will know that you belong to the king. At a minimum, you will have debunked their bad impressions of Christians and have won a new friend. In the end, they will see you as the invitation and they will see the invitation. Please take a few moments to consider what you've heard today. Ask yourself, are you going through the motions? Are you playing church? What are you trusting in? Are you trusting in Christ for your salvation? If you do, friend, God's word promises you that he will never leave you nor forsake you. Sadly, in this life, relationships with other people often fail. But God will never fail you. He will never leave you. Believe the gospel and you will immediately begin to enjoy a relationship with your king that will never end. And he will forever forgive you and make you permanently acceptable in his sight. If you're a believer here today, ask yourself, am I a living invitation for the gospel? Do people know that I belong to Christ? What am I doing to bring people to the wedding banquet of the king? The point of today's parable is that there are consequences for rejecting the Messiah's invitation. Please, please, don't reject your king. Consider those things for a few moments and I'll close this in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you first for your amazing grace. The fact that any one of us might be invited into a relationship with you is evidence of your mercy and grace. As the psalmist said, you have not treated us as our sins deserve. Instead, you have embraced us with forgiveness and love we could never earn and will never deserve. Thank you, Holy Father, for your amazing love toward us, demonstrated so humbly by your Son. I pray, Father, that we would be moved to patiently, graciously, and humbly share the gospel with those who do not know you, that our very lives, the way we act, the things we say, the way we respond, the way we serve, would be your invitations to a lost and hurting world that does not know you and does not know what it means to enjoy the peace and fellowship that comes with being your children. I pray that those here who do not know you would be drawn by your spirit this very day to believe and to trust in Christ, to take a seat alongside your church in a celebration that would never, will never end. Thank you, Lord, for this day that you've made. May we give you all the honor and glory. And Father, we thank you for our mothers and the mothers here among us 
and those special women who serve as mothers to us. May they feel loved and appreciated every day of the year. We pray all these things in accordance with your perfect will and in Christ's matchless name. Amen.